Welcome back to the JPO Podcast. This is another episode from the POSNA annual meeting, which was unfortunately canceled, but is coming to you in virtual form. Today, we are going to go over the general session from the meeting on sports slash trauma. We're joined by the moderators, Dr. Eric Edmonds from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, and Dr. Jennifer Beck from Orthopedic Institute for Children at UCLA. We've got several authors who I'm happy to say are joining us, and I will introduce them as we move along. So with no further ado, let's jump into the material. We'll start with a study entitled, Is the Pendulum Swinging in the Right Direction? Displaced and non-displaced supracondylar humerus fractures have similar functional outcomes with casting. The scheduled presenter at the meeting is joining us today. That's Dr. Jay Lee from Johns Hopkins University. In this study, the authors retrospectively looked at 98 supracondylar humerus fractures treated non-operatively, including type 1s, type 2As, and type 2Bs, where type 2B means that there is dorsal angulation as well as some translation and or rotation of that fracture fragment. Average follow-up was five years, and based on patient-reported outcome metrics, everyone reported essentially perfect function. A handful reported the elbow appears somewhat abnormal compared to the other side. And with that, I'll hand it over to Drs. Beck and Edmonds. So what's your algorithm for your treatment of your type 1s versus your type 2 supracondylars? And is there a distinction between your type 2As and your type 2Bs for your supracondylars? Uh, yeah, so I think every institution is a little different in how we classify our supracondylar humerus fracture. So in our manuscript, we've kind of further clarified our definition of these uh, supracondylar subtypes. And so we further explain how we classify supracondylar humerus fractures just to make sure everyone's on the same page. I know folks are working on redefining the type three. Some of our type two A's and two B's, two B's in particular, might fall into that type three category where you have some comminution and some impaction. We still call those two A's and two B's if there is some cortical continuity. And so um, I think with some of the new classification systems we're taking Taking these two A's and two B's where at our institution, we're still treating non-operatively with casting and we're throwing them into the type three category where all surgeons will start operating on all of these. And so I think that's why it's important to kind of still recognize that some of these can still be treated uh, with casting. And our classification systems uh, shouldn't be so rigid in forcing our hand in operating on some of these elbow fractures that otherwise do just fine. Our study is biased just because this only picks out these successful non-operative treatments. Some of them were casted and didn't quite meet criteria because they crossed over into operative treatment. And so we specifically focused on the non-operatively treated supracondylar humerus fractures. So it doesn't say that all type 2As and all type 2Bs are amenable to casting. It doesn't say that they will all do well. It doesn't mean that some of them won't fall into operative treatment as you kind of watch them. But it just does kind of point out that there's a group of them that can be treated and do well. When any of these patients, was there any sort of reduction performed, especially on the 2As or 2Bs? It varied quite a bit. Uh, some of these uh, presented in clinic were close enough, and we basically, without sedation, we went ahead and gently flexed up the elbow a little further. A couple of them were in the ED. A couple of them were sedated, so they actually had formal sedation uh, episodes and formal reductions by the residents. Um, and all of them were followed serially until the cast was ready to come off. We'd usually check them one and two weeks after the cast was applied. And then what's your casting protocol? A lot of people are really concerned about hyperflexing type 2As and 2Bs with compartment syndromes where they cast it at 90 degrees or at hyperflexion. 
In terms of casting, we do traditionally aim for something greater than 90 degrees, just a little bit more. We do understand there's a risk with casting and traditionally Volkman ischemic contractures and Bartman syndrome and things like that. So I would say the goal is 90 degrees, 100 degrees, maybe at best, but we don't truly hyperflex them you know, to 120 and pass to get them perfect. I think we found that some of our reductions did not quite hold perfectly. Some of the end outcomes weren't perfect in terms of the reduction. The antral humeral line was just barely grazing the capitellum. But again, patients can't tell them the long run. How did you monitor them with their post-casting? Did you see them the next day, have phone calls? How closely were these kids monitored? Yeah, so typically for me, everyone's a little bit different, but I follow mine pretty closely every one to two weeks. Week one and week two, I go ahead and uh, get x-rays in cast. And then that's when we make a decision to cross over to operative treatment if we needed to. And then casting for about four to five weeks was my protocol. One of my partners cast for six one cast for three. So there's a little bit of variation. There's no standard. And did you see any of those complications? Did you have any compartment syndromes from these type 2As and 2Bs that didn't undergo surgery? We did not have any compartment syndrome during that time. During that time, we had a lot of superconvolutors treated operatively. I don't want to have the paper or give the sense that we're casting <laughs> all of our fractures. We had another 500 during that period that were all operated on. So it's a small percentage. I think anyone with any concern of uh, soft tissue swelling, any concern that the flexion is going to not be the best treatment for them because of their compartment syndrome risk, I would have no hesitancy in going ahead and instead of reducing them in a cast, I would reduce them and pin them. And then it would be interesting to kind of talk about the cost comparison. All these kids, you know, with the two A's and two B's that did not get surgery, how much money did you save your system, save the family, save the healthcare system? Uh, we haven't looked into it. I think that'd be interesting to see what the actual cost difference is. You do have an extra trip maybe for the uh, for the parents at weeks one and two. I mean, if we see them in through the ED, operate on them, sometimes we just say, hey, come back when the pins are right. out. And so there might be some, some discussion to have with some of these parents who are pretty well read and um, like to be informed. You might have a discussion that either pushes them one way versus the other, depending on whether or not they want to come back for that additional visit. Well, that's great, Dr. Lee. In conclusion, is the pendulum swinging in the right direction? Do you have sort of an overarching takeaway from this endeavor? Yeah, so I think it's swinging in the, in the wrong direction. If we start classifying some of these mild medial impactions as type 3s, we're going to reflexively operate on them. So I think if the classification system starts to evolve a little bit, I think it's probably moving in the wrong direction. I think we operate on too many of them in certain circumstances. I would say at our institution, I think this reaffirms the fact that we can go ahead and cast these and the patient do well. And so I think as a orthopedic society, maybe we're operating on too many, but I think uh, hopefully this study kind of encourages a subset of us to kind of really think about the uh, patient, think about the fracture and not fix every single one that we see. Yeah. So within your practice and your uh, department, do you guys sort of think of yourselves as being a little more non-operative, a little more aggressive with non-operative care in these patients? Yes. Yeah, so traditionally, we have taken that approach, sort of a non-operative approach, and considered it for a lot of different fractures for our type 2 supercondylars, our tibial spine fractures that are not too far displaced, the type 2 uh, ones of those, our type 1 open open fractures as well. So a lot of these, are, we're still approaching with some thought as to a lot of them being able to do well, patients being able to do well without a, an operative procedure. So that's just our philosophy from probably from our chairman, and it kind of percolates on down. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. Next, we've got three articles that we're bundling together, all covering tibial spine fractures. Tibial spine fracture article number one is entitled Posna Surgeon Warning. Multicenter study reveals arthrofibrosis incidents after operative management of tibial spine fractures higher than previously reported. 
This study is from the Tibiospine Research Group. The scheduled presenter at the meeting was Ted Ganley, and we have the privilege of having another author. Uh, in fact, an author of all three of the tibiospine fracture papers we'll be reviewing, Henry Ellis from TSRH, joining us to discuss it. In this study, the authors looked at 395 patients who had surgery for tibial spine fractures across 10 institutions. 20% developed arthrofibrosis, which was associated with non-sports injuries, concomitant ACL tears, and longer operative times. This rate was notably higher than what we've seen in previously literature, which is typically about 10%. Awesome. So we're going to learn a lot about uh, tibial spines today with a couple of these papers, which I think is great information, especially that's come out of the PRISM groups with the tibial spine rigs. Is there something that kind of when you went through some of these that really stood out that's changed your practice about how you're potentially preventing arthrofibrosis in your patients? Well, I think when we collaborate and we put all of our cases together, I think it becomes a little bit more eye-opening um, of a condition that uh, we all need to continue to develop a good working model. And and as we all know, you know, our prospective data on tibial spines is really just, it really isn't there right now. And so we need to continue to learn how to treat these kids well. And, you know, we need to focus our energy on not only treating the fracture fragment, but what is the best modality before surgery and what is the best treatment after surgery. We know long to remobilization uh, is a problem and it continues to be a problem with this study when when we looked at prolonged immobilization may be another factor associated with arthrofibrosis. But oftentimes we, we reflect upon it. And we think when we look at the ACL literature, and we've known this for 20 years, 30 years, that getting the motion down and getting the swelling down on an ACL before you operate really allows for some improved motion postoperatively. And so preoperative evaluation, it's, it's kind of opened our eyes and the rig in consideration of, of what do we need to do preoperatively and really limit immobilization postoperatively. So do you feel like uh, it wasn't so much anything within surgical techniques, uh, it was more in the perioperative treatment that kind of caused the arthrofibrosis? Yeah, we, we really didn't. Uh, we didn't really find that there was any operative details uh, that we thought were really pertinent to, to development of arthrofibrosis. It really is very similar to the CHOP and Ted Ganley's original uh, systematic review that really didn't find too much difference between open or arthroscopic or even treatment itself. As part of any of this information, did you guys discuss what your pre-op and post-op regimens were? You know, I was a little surprised to see that the time to surgery was like 20 and 24 days. In my practice here in LA, we have a lot of delayed presentations, so that's pretty typical for me, but I, I was actually a little surprised to see that time frame. Yeah, I think that goes back into the need to continue to learn about tibial spines and what is the right time frame, whether they need to be done more acutely uh, or if you can prevent arthrofibrosis in a delayed fashion. I really don't think that this study, it's really a retrospective nature, retrospective collaboration of multiple institutions. I don't think we can really answer that question, but we really hope to do so um, in the future. So on that note, kind of what's the next steps that you're gonna take this paper? Well, I think the ability for this research group to come together and to retrospectively look at all of our tibial spines has led us to develop a prospective uh, registry. And so we, we now are probably somewhere between 30 to 60 days uh, for converting this into a prospective project. The same institutions that we're going to prospectively enroll it. We learned a lot from the retrospective data and that allowed us to fine tune um, our protocols moving forward and what we are going to evaluate to try to identify some of these answers. Um, and that it received the POSNA grant this year. And I really credit all the members of the, the PRISM uh, Research Interest Group, but especially those representatives of CHOP and, and Ted Gamley in leading this effort. Well, congratulations on that grant. That's an awesome thing. And obviously, POSN is happy to support this. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much, Dr. Ellis. Next, let's move on to tibial spine fracture paper number two. It's entitled, Do Not Discount Non-Operative Treatment. 
Factors Associated with a Successful Close Reduction of a Tibial Eminence Fracture. Dr. Ellis, who is again going to be discussing with us, was also the scheduled presenter at the annual meeting. And in this study, the authors looked at 35 tibial spine fractures treated with closed reduction. Most had either sedation or local anesthetic injected into the knee. 27 of 35 were considered successful. The other eight remained displaced by an average of 4 millimeters and were treated operatively. Type 3s were not more likely to fail closed reduction than type 2s, though there were only 16 type 3s in the study. Failure was associated with delayed presentation, more superior displacement, and relatively thick fracture fragments. So I think this was a, a really interesting study because I know, you know, we here see a, a fair amount of tibial spines and I'm always wondering, you know, what's worth even giving an attempt at a closed reduction or should I just put them into a knee immobilizer and just call it a day? Um, I think the biggest question I had is what gets considered an acceptable reduction where you said, okay, this is, this is good enough. Yeah, I think that's really one of the biggest limitations to this particular project. You know, I, I really was looking primarily at the radiographic data, wh which ones really actually reduce well and which ones don't reduce well, which ones can you get a near anatomic reduction and which ones can you not. Um, and a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder and the eye of the surgeon. And, you know, because of the retrospective nature and, and looking at these, we had to really rely upon the treating surgeon to make that determination. So, you know, so that's, that's a limitation to this particular study, but obviously, again, a platform for us to look at these prospectively. And everything was done just on plain x-ray. There weren't follow-up CT scans, advanced imaging to actually confirm the, the reduction? Yeah. I, and I think that's a really important point as well, Jen, because you know, what compelled me to look at these is the recent POSNA survey uh, really demonstrated that about a third of surgeons who treat tibial spines are really considering uh, a closed reduction for a type 2 tibial spine. And, you know, there's very little literature that really justifies the movement away from closed reduction and towards operative management. Very little prospective good level of evidence. Uh, when we look at what we know about closed reductions, we know they don't always work. And we know that they can lead to further ACL instability. And so we really have to be very careful not just to assume that it's a technique that is ineffective, as opposed to trying to look at which ones can, can you achieve a reasonable radiographic close reduction. But now we know so much more about concomitant injuries and perhaps injuries to the ACL that I really think you have to get an MRI afterwards to be sure that you have a good level of understanding about other concomitant injuries or whether there's an intersubstance tear within the ACL as well, they would lead you against accepting a closed reduction. Now, this was a retrospective study, but, I, but obviously as we move forward, we really need to start thinking about the option of a closed reduction. And Eric, you, I mean, you know, your, your study is one of the only ones in the last 10 years. Um, and when you look at the closed reductions in your group, 16% may need a, a future surgery, but you surgical management, you have a 10% risk of stiffness or arthrofibrosis. And, and even our recent collaboration on the recent presentation we just discussed about up to 20% with arthrofibrosis. Well, closed reductions really don't seem to have quite that rate of stiffness or arthrofibrosis afterwards. And, you know, if we could figure out which ones can be successful, I think we should still use it as an opportunity and not just something that we should avoid because we think surgery is better. Yeah. Thanks for the shout out on that. Uh, and on that token, my anecdotal experience has been that sometimes like the worst of the type threes where there's kind of like a big extension out onto the articular surface, those seem to be the ones that will reduce for me. Uh, were you able to kind of tease that out at all in terms of your success in getting type threes to reduce? 
Yeah. So, you know, I looked at it and I was, I was quite surprised. And, and, you know, a lot of people believe that type threes are the ones that absolutely need a surgery. But the reality is, is when I looked at this, we had just as many type threes by percentage that moved, that mobilized, that obtained an anatomic reduction, um, and that were determined or deemed successful. So there doesn't seem to be, in terms of radiographic reduction appearance, a difference between a type two and a type three. I think that's really an interesting point because I think I've anecdotally noticed the same thing. The, those wider fragments, you get more pressure from the condyles with the hyperextension. You know, our practice has been that we feel like closed reductions are definitely worthwhile and we have our residents give them a shot. And the, the question then I think for the follow-up is for a closed reduction, can you give, you know, for the audience, people who maybe don't do these as often, do you have a specific technique that you like to go by? Um, how much extension do you put them into? What do you cast them in? When, when do you start giving them any sort of flexion? Do you have a general protocol potentially for the audience? Yeah, we do have a technique that we do. And I would just further elaborate uh, that, you know, this is primarily a radiographic study where we just want to see, does the fracture move? And the reality is we had 12 of those closed reductions that really moved greater than five millimeters. And so there are those ones that really can be effectively translated or, or reduced um, literally. And there's those that are stuck and don't move at all. You know, the technique that we do is very similar to a Lockman. I'll tell you, we, a, a collaboration we made through Jay Posna, we wrote up the technique for the closed reduction. So that should be coming out in the near future. But effectively, what we do is we put the knee in about 30 degrees. And I like to do interarticular injections. You know, I, I aspirate and then inject uh, with 1% lidocaine. And then that then allows me to uh, perform a reduction in clinic or in the ER, put the knee at 30 degrees. I perform a Lockman maneuver. So what it does, it tries to pull tension on that ACL and I try to displace it a little bit. And then in doing that, I hope that the anterior tissue, including the intermeniscal ligament or the medial meniscus, would then slide off the front of the tibia. So you perform your Lockman with anterior translation as you extend it. And I will then hyperextend it, hold it there, get my C-arm, take a look at my reduction in that position, and then I will relax it to a neutral position and I'll cast it at that point, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really well thought out, actually. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a great technique. And most people just say, oh, I put them into some hyperextension and that's really not dealing with the meniscal entrapment issue. But I think that that's a really smart way of thinking about it and is really going to give your patients any potential best option for non-operative management. We'll look forward to that article out in Jay Posna. That's something we should all pay attention to. Well, that's great. Let's move on to uh, tibial spine article three of three. This is another study from the tibial spine research group that spans 10 institutions. The authors looked at 174 patients with type 2 fractures and compared the ones treated non-operatively to those who had surgery. The comparison was not randomized, and surgical patients had more arthrofibrosis, but non-operative patients had more laxity and were more likely to need future surgery for recurrent tibial spine fractures or ACL tears. So I think these are kind of interesting back-to-back papers to, to talk about of how you kind of combine the information from, you know, your arthrofibrosis rates to success of closed treatment to, okay, potential pitfalls of closed treatment versus your operative treatment. If you kind of had to sum up all these three paper, papers together, what, what would you say is kind of the biggest take-home points with all three of these? My three take-home points would be that we have to continue to evaluate arthrofibrosis and consider our management, not only technique, but perioperative management to minimize arthrofibrosis because it may be higher than we think. I think number two is that a closed reduction remains a very viable option, but you cannot just assume that every closed reduction can be effective. I think you have to be very genuine and make sure that you have a reasonable reduction. You can't just accept 
a reduction that's not adequate or not near anatomic, and you've got to get an MRI to be sure that you don't have a concomitant intersubstance tear to the ligament. And I think that's where the third paper really comes into play, as this is a collection of um, a lot of closed reductions, uh, but I'm not sure that particularly with this multi-center collection that we really took an honest look at the quality of the reduction. Um, we just took all covers. And so the reality is, is a closed reduction should still be a successful option. We just have to be very critical to be sure that it was effective. You've been very uh, diplomatic about not trying to give a like opinion as to like, these are why these are failing, or this is why we're getting arthrofibrosis. And I realize your prospective study is probably going to be the thing that answers this question legitimately. But what's your gestalt feeling? Do we need to rehab them for six weeks, like an ACL before they have their surgery? Where's going to be the turning point on these? Yeah, I think motion is key. I think preoperative motion is key. I think we're learning more and more about the biology of the knee uh, when you have a hemoarthrosis. We know much more about ACLs, and I think we are much more effective at preventing arthrofibrosis than ACLs. And I think it's because we know that the hemoarthrosis that presents after an ACL injury has you know, has a, a negative biologic effect on the knee. And I think operating through that, uh, we've learned the hard way that that causes arthrofibrosis after ACL, and we have to be a little bit more genuine um, in the tibial spine. So I think the big difference is going to be to get the swelling down mobilize those tibial spines perhaps before you consider operating on them and then really being confident in your fixation so that you can mobilize very quickly after the operation. Now, I'd say I, I realize that there are some tibial spines that because of the displacement, they won't mobilize um, and you won't be able to achieve extension because of the fracture fragment alone, but I don't think that that's the majority of the fractures that we treat. I think one of the kind of interesting things that, that I try and think about, and especially when you talk about your, you know, recurrent tibial spine fractures is the rate of non-union of reduced or fixated tibial spine fractures, I think is probably not really reported. Was, was there any consideration to these recurrent tibial spine injuries being non-unions of the original injury, and then they just had symptomatic instability? Or were these truly new injuries? I would fully admit I'm young in my career still, and it's something I haven't appreciated, and I'm sure it's seeing me. I just haven't seen it yet, but I'd love some more thoughts on that part. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I don't think we really know that. And I think, again, I think we're going to learn most of that in a prospective study. You know, we can't really rely very heavily on the current literature on tibial spines because it's almost all retrospective in nature. And we haven't really been able to define quality reduction and then adequacy or competency of the ACL. You know, our knowledge on the importance of an MRI has really, it's really only been apparent in the last five years. So I think we're going to learn a lot more about uh, tibial spines and what other injuries and whether there's a soft tissue injury on top of a bony injury, it's going to help us know a lot about that. And some fracture patterns can have asymptomatic fibrous unions, effectively bony non-unions, and they clinically do well. I, I, I just don't know if that's what we're seeing on tibial spines or not. Awesome. Well, thank you for all your work. I think it's a great starting point as you, as you talk about, and thank you for all these papers. I think we've all learned a lot and are going to think a little bit differently about tibial spines. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Well, that's great. Thank you so much again for joining us, Dr. Ellis. Next, we've got a study entitled, Use Caution When Assessing Preoperative Leg Length Discrepancy in Pediatric Patients with Acute ACL Injuries. We're joined by Dr. Dan Green from HSS. And in this study, the authors sought to determine if standing full-length hip-to-ankle x-rays were useful for determining leg length before and after ACL reconstruction. For example, when ruling out growth arrest after transficial ACL surgery. They found that there was often an apparent leg length discrepancy before surgery and not afterwards, probably because patients lack full extension or stand awkwardly because it hurts to bear weight. So I, th I guess the kind of the first question would be, you know, what, what are your actual indications for getting standing lower extremity al alignment x-rays and what patient population are you really looking at these for? 
it's it's primarily for the uh, scotally immature patient who's undergoing ACL reconstruction and uh, have a couple years of growth remaining and want to follow it. I think one of the long-standing weaknesses of the literature is most of our pediatric ACL papers don't include a preoperative leg length assessment. And I don't know, almost 20 years ago, I did a study in a clinic with 15 kids and measured them twice on two different weekends, their leg lengths. And clinically, our error rate was close to two centimeters when we kind of did a blinded left leg, right leg, and tried to come up with a difference between the sides in a limb length clinic. So uh, you can imagine with evidence-based medicine and uh, multi-center studies going, one of the criteria is that you're going, doing a good job is that you're getting your pre-op leg length x-rays. And so we're really proud that we have a system to get our pre-op leg length x-rays. And this data is really just trying to give a reminder to everybody that you have to use skepticism. You, just because an injured knee, you can maybe get a close to full extension on your exam table. They may not be standing comfortably when they're doing their standing x-rays. And our attempt to find the data was really, we looked at time zero, which was pre-op, which was anywhere from six weeks to one week pre-op, basically. And then we compared it to the six-month post-op x-ray. So our apparent limb length discrepancy greater than a centimeter decreased dramatically. I think it was 60%. If the ACL leg was the short leg, there was resolution at six months and a big percentage of cases. So we have to rethink our algorithm. We're rethinking how we do it in our clinic. We're definitely not uh, sending kids with painful knees directly for standing leg length x-rays. And we all have seen a kid with bucket meniscus that can't straighten their legs. So how do we get their baseline x-rays? I've changed the wording in my practice. Instead of saying pre-op, now I say baseline. So at three months when they're looking good, I can get a baseline as one way that I've been dealing with the kids with a painful knee. Hey, Dan, I, I don't know if you got this to like biplanar radiography but have you considered that so that you can see, you know, the laterals, which would be yeah, effective? In, the, in, this, in, in the last year or two, we've been getting biplane EOS. When we first started, I was just getting uniplane EOS. It's obviously you can tell uh, when there's big differences on the lateral if they're not standing straight. Uh, even when we first started, the EOS training, if you're trying to get femoral version and tibial version, they can send it off to Montreal or some techs can measure version on the EOS. They actually train the techs to bend one leg a little. <laughs> So we had to, you know, obviously uh, just double check our protocol. And, and we have definitely noticed some cases since we've done that where it's obvious that they have a bent knee. But I think it's not completely bent knee because maybe you're standing uncomfortably. Maybe one leg's a little more than the other. Or maybe one leg's rotated a little differently at the hip than the other. So I think the primary causes are asymmetric knee extension. But I think there's a secondary cause of just how they're positioning themselves, even though the techs try to be consistent. Did you go back and look and compare their clinical exam from that same visit to, to see if they had any documented flexion contractures or extension loss to compare those? We definitely looked at the data and a sense was like, I've seen patients in the day-to-day -day clinic where, gosh, the knee's extended, but then you get the leg leg and you come back and they're like, oh, you know, they just were standing comfortably. Sometimes in the office, you can say, you know, okay, push a little harder, go straight. So I'll put down full extension, but when they're standing or when they're walking, we all see them walking with a flex knee gait. So we're setting them too early, I think, and we're not, maybe we're not prompting them as good as we should while they're standing in the x-ray room. Now, having said that, you know, the, the focus of the paper is really talking about how 60% of the short ACL legs resolve at six months, but there's still a certain percentage of leg length discrepancy that they did find, you know, the, all the times that the ACL was a long leg, you know, we can't blame that on their knee being bent. And uh, there was a, you know, 40% that didn't resolve at the initial post-op. So I still think it's an important tool. It's just going to be really kind of clumsy, I think, when the big study groups are looking at the data two years, three years down the road. I think if we'll have to use a criteria like, you know, is there a difference of two centimeters or a centimeter and a half or something? 
how, how many times do you think that these have changed your clinical practice with the patient that you've had to actually correct something or do something? I think I have uh, personal biases and then I, I look, I think I've done 10 kids with implant mediated guided growth or eight kids with implant mediated guided growth for valgus. And of course you can see that with your eye, but I think it definitely uh, factors in. And then I think it's almost half these patients had a significant leg length discrepancy that I didn't know about. Half of the discrepancies were true. And I follow those more carefully. I've done on long leg ACLs. I had a pre-op case. It was a, a little over a centimeter preoperatively in the long ACL leg. And it was a very young child who had a uh, modified Macintosh and she ended up having overgrowth. And I closed that long leg because she had two years of growth remaining. And it was over two centimeters. And I don't know if I would have picked it up if I didn't have that pre-op study. Moving forward, do you have any other kind of follow-up for the study that you're planning on doing? We probably have enough numbers now, or at least to, to see the biplane. The first half of our patients didn't have that. So over this next year, we've been gaining that. I think that's interesting. We've only looked at six months. What is it if you look at a year and two years? And the, you know, the reason we're really doing this is to really see what the two-year outcome is. So that's going to be really interesting data that we'll start having soon. Awesome. I, I think it was a really interesting paper, and I, I definitely think it highlights paying attention to this. I know that we're probably not as good about getting those alignment films and basing it much more clinically following them um, than we should be, but I do think it's important data that those of us doing skeletally immature ACLs really should be paying attention to because I think there's an easy correction if you catch some of those. So I think it's great paper for the literature, and thank you so much for uh, sharing this with us. All right, you guys. Be safe. Thank you very much for letting me Thanks, go. Thanks, Dan. That's great. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Next, we are moving on to another ACL paper. But before we do, Dr. Fabricant, would you like to add anything to Dr. Green's comments since you were also an author on that last paper? He kind of hit all the high points. I think even in patients who we think we examine who can straighten their leg on the exam table may not stand in the scanner with a straight leg. I think that's a really um, insightful thing. And he kind of taught me that, you know, we really need to be to scrutinize the long leg films. And if we think they're not comfortably extending their knee to repeat it before surgery. Yeah, that's great. And next, we're moving on to another paper titled Cost-Effectiveness for Return-to-Play Programs After ACL Reconstruction. We're joined by senior author, again, Dr. Peter Fabricant from HSS. And in this study, the authors designed an ACL rehab program that builds on traditional PT by adding neuromuscular retraining, more surgeon follow-up visits, and the possibility of returning to play earlier than usual by passing certain functional tests. This study suggests that the program is cost-effective from the perspective of insurance companies, predominantly because it decreases the risk of graft or contralateral ACL rupture. So, the authors argue it should be covered by insurance, even though it's about $950 more expensive than traditional PT. So, I guess, uh, Pete, I got a question for you. Why can't the neuromuscular retraining be part of the standard PT protocol? Like, why in your modeling does it cost more? Yeah, it's a great question. So, the thing that we did with our model was we said... If someone's undergoing kind of a standard milestone-based PT, which can include neuromuscular training as part of that PT, um, versus some enhanced program that focuses on neuromuscular retraining and then tests them at some interval, which might require additional visits, additional testing, is that additional testing in a milestone-based return-to-play program cost-effective? We all kind of know the literature that primary ACL injury prevention programs are effective 
that milestone-based return to play programs are effective, but there is an additional cost with some of these programs in the form of additional PT visits. And in the case of some insurance companies, they're really limiting the amount of PT patients can get. So the purpose of this study was to kind of model it economically to say, if they pay for these visits up front, is that going to end up saving them money in the long run? And we found that it would. As part of it, what, what's your guys' current protocol at HSS for doing your return to play? When do you even consider it? You know, are you doing them early? Are you doing them late? Are you doing multiple of them? What's your kind of current protocol right now at HSS? Yeah, so we're all probably a little different. I'll tell you, if my own protocol is essentially I plan to return kids to sports around one year. So we typically start testing them at six months. And that six-month test is something I learned when I was in Boston uh, doing my fellowship. And basically, no one really passes that six-month test, right? So it's not a test that you're designed to ace. And I kind of tell kids it's a midterm exam. So you're going to take your midterm exam at six months. We're going to identify the things you need to work on so that we can get you back to sports in a year. Now, some kids do really well on that test. No one really aces it, but let's say they do okay. We retest them at nine months, and then we start a return to play progression at nine months. Some kids, you know, really don't do well at six months. We retest them at nine or ten months after they've made some improvements. They're still not really ready to start a return to play progression, so we might hold off until 12, 13, 14 months to put them on a return to play progression, starting with non-contact practice, moving up to contact practice, and then competition. So average about a year, some kids a little earlier, some kids a little later, depending on how they do it that first and second sports performance test. And are you expecting your patients are getting physical therapy once a week, twice a week? You know, how, how do you do account for those visits in your practice versus in your modeling? In practice, it really depends on, on the insurance company. So some insurance companies will allow, it's rarer, but some insurance companies allow unlimited PT for a certain period of time. More often than not, companies will allow a certain number of visits for a given condition in a given calendar year. So I typically tell them to, when, they, when they're actually starting skilled PT is typically around two weeks. I just kind of get them moving on their own the first two weeks. They're going typically twice a week. And then as they get into more of the endurance enhancement, strength training, things like that, they're doing it just once a week, but they're doing something on their own most days of the week, stretching, strengthening, things like that. So it really depends on their insurance company. As far as the modeling goes, the beauty of the model is because it's not specific to, a, to any given program. Like we gave, we gave a base case program as an example, but then we modeled it using a two-way sensitivity analysis. So we could say, okay, given any program, with any profile of cost and effectiveness, you know, at what threshold is it cost effective for an insurance company to pay for it? And at least given the current state of the art of the uh, return to sports programs, even though they currently cost $900 typically, and they have typically like a 25% decrease in ACL graft rupture, given that same amount of effectiveness, insurance companies should be willing to pay up to $2,100 over and above what they're typically paying for a standard PT program, because in the long run, it's going to prevent that number of ACL ruptures, and they're not going to have to pay for that. So it actually ends up saving the insurance companies money in the long run. And out of curiosity, were those numbers kind of based on like New York premiums versus, you know, around the country? So the cost, the cost modeling is based off of some of the some of the data we had to just take from our hospitals costing, but a lot of it is based off of published data for the cost of ACL reconstruction, the cost of rehab. But the kind of volume of data that we put together was a mix of kind of national data as well as what we know stuff costs in our healthcare system. 
And then I'm sure everybody wants to know, have you gone back to insurance companies with this data and gotten them to cover things they initially had denied and, and actually gotten someone to change their mind on a payment? Yeah, that's a great question. So the short answer is yes. The long answer is once. Um, it happened once. Uh, but I think it was more the peer-to-peer and me talking to another physician and kind of leveling with them. I did present them the data. I don't know if the data was the determining factor in whether they approved more PT visits, including neuromuscular training, but maybe it's the first win for the for this study. But I think going forward, especially with some insurance companies that are administered through work and some that are kind of conglomerates that cover like large swaths of patient groups. And like, um, like in New York City, there's a, an insurance that covers like all the teachers, all the firefighters, all the cops, like all the kind of government workers. They're very responsive to the needs and wants of their constituents. So we kind of can give this paper to the patients or the families and say, here, go to your insurance company and kind of raise a stink about it. And we're hopeful that 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 could be helpful as well. That's awesome information. No, I think it's something we all are trying to get better information about our our return to play protocols and the effectiveness and what are the right ways to do it. And obviously in the end, we want our patients out there on the field and not re-rupturing. So I think it's important information that we can fight the battle with our patients against the insurance companies. So thank you for that. I think it's really great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Agreed. Thank you. All right, cool. Thanks, guys. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Stay safe. Have a good night. Stay safe out Bye. there. Well, that's all we've got. Thank you to everyone for listening, and thank you to all of our moderators and presenters. Again, that was Dr. Jen Beck from the Orthopedic Institute for Children at UCLA, Dr. Eric Edmonds from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, Dr. Henry Ellis from TSRH, Dr. Dan Green, and Dr. Peter Fabricant from HSS, and Dr. Jay Lee from Hopkins. Thanks, everyone.